Well, you made it to uh, the official start of all football season. It's here. Um, how many ladies are uh, frustrated at this? How many of you are afraid to admit your frustration? Stay silent. Okay. Um, here's, here's, here's the beauty of how this works, right? So the men get football for, from now until like, early November, and then Hallmark's going to make the same movie 27 times. <laughs> And on Saturday nights, we're going to be forced to sit by you because we love you and endure what we know is going to happen. At four minutes till, it's going to be reconciled. A kiss will be given, and all will be well. We don't know how they live in such an exuberant lifestyle being a bookseller, but nonetheless, we are excited. So it's a give and take relationship. Happy fall, y'all. Can we say that sort of? Sort of fall, y'all. It's still summer. You're still swimming, but, you know, that's the way it is in South Carolina. Uh, We're humbled that you've taken some time out of your weekend to be here. Uh, My name is Pastor Russ. I have the honor of being the senior pastor here at Four Points. If I've not gotten to meet you or welcome you, welcome. We're we're honored that you're here with us. All is well back in South Carolina this weekend. Uh, The Gamecocks and the Tigers were able to beat the mighty Furman Paladins and the mighty Charleston Southern Buccaneers. So we're happy, and we're also happy for all the random Colorado fans we're running into now. I didn't know so many of you were out there, but choo-choo, welcome to the train. I also want to acknowledge that while my buddy is a Florida State fan, and I can attest that for two years of knowing he's been one, that there's a ton of Florida State fans all of a sudden that are like flying flags and stuff. Y'all been quiet for like a decade, but welcome back. We're glad you're here. Uh, I warned you that this day uh, would be a day that we would tackle the toughest subject of the Taboo series, the subject being giving to your local church, to which most of us felt the Spirit leave the room in this moment. Uh, We have been looking cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, at the subject of wealth and the pursuit of wealth, and what the Bible teaches about our heart needing to be checked consistently when it comes to its affection for and pursuit of those things. And so over the last several weeks, I've done my best to read the Bible and then teach the Bible so that we could have a God-sized view of why he created resource wealth and the ability to gain and spend and save and invest those things. And the first week, I wanted to give you a warning that before you get a pay raise, before you go and buy another lottery ticket, before you go and try and get more money, uh, that you need to be warned that wealth uh, can get you in a lot of trouble. In the words of a guy that's in First Opinions chapter 3, his name was Mace, he said, Mo money, mo problems. And if you do not have, if you do not have a God-sized vision for why you gain, for why you spend, for why you save, then more money will actually add to your problems, not relieve you of your problems. The love of money, First Timothy teaches, is the root of all sorts of evil. The problem is not that money is evil, it's that we are evil. And apart from Jesus, we do evil things with everything he's created and put on this earth. And so what we need to be reminded of is that if money becomes God, if money becomes the chase, the aim, the goal, if that's what we're after in life, then we are going to make a wreck out of everything around us and ourselves in the process. So the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. There was lots of amens. That is the most watched sermon of the series 
the least watched sermons were sermons 2, 3, and 4. Uh, 2, 3, and 4 dealt with the purpose of money. Why do we have money? Why did God make it? And I believe there's two primary reasons. I had five in the sermon notes if you scan them, but there were two that we got to in the sermon because we just took too many tangents, and they are this. The primary reason God made money is a means for us to worship. Everything God has given us on earth is an opportunity for us to steward and use it to the glory of God. You go all the way back to the book of Genesis. He put man in the, art, uh, in the garden to steward it, to work it, so that it would be fruitful, so that it would be multiplied. And God in us working under his authority would get great glory in that stewardship. So money, resource, harvest, what God gives us from the labor of the sweat of our brow is a means for us to turn to God and say, thank you, or a means for us us to remove ourselves from God and say we don't need you. And for a lot of us, the reason we want more wealth and the reason we accumulate is we want to be dependent on nothing, and that includes God, which is actually problematic to the Christian life. Because you've been made to live in absolute dependency on God, walking in step in honoring God. And everything you do is an act of worship to self, to something, or to God. And we believe that money is a means for us to honor and worship God. God, number one. Number two, the second thing that we taught in that message is that money is a means for us to bless others. If you look at the promise that goes all the way back to the nation of Israel, God said that he was going to make them a nation and he was going to make them fruitful so that they could multiply and be a blessing to others around them. So the idea is that we are blessed to worship God and to be a blessing to others around us. And so for a lot of us, we gain so that we can build ourselves up, not so that we can lend and help our neighbor or look out for the poor and the oppressed. Those are the parts of the Bible that the American church doesn't like to look at much because it convicts us about a lot of apathy in our own hearts and a lot of attitudes that have built up an attitude of indifference towards people who are in the margins around us. So that was a humdinger. Then week three, uh, last week we looked at uh, getting out of debt for the sake of living a generous life. And so we talked about the fact that the standard for us as followers of Jesus is that we have been called to live generous. Many of us want a law. God says be generous. Generous requires relationship. Generous requires us coming to God with everything and asking God to set a standard for how we live and how we steward and what we do with what God has given us. You see, for many of us, though, we would just rather God tell us, you know, what's the going rate on this thing? How much do I have to give you so that you can leave me alone and I can have mine. And here's the problem. There's nothing that God looks at in your life that, doesn't, that, that he doesn't rightly say, it's not yours, it's mine. Your life belongs to him. The numbers on, the, on your head, though few or many for many of us in the room, have been numbered by him. Your days, they belong to him and they're a gift that he gave to you. And as long as there is an inkling of an idea in your mind that something belongs to you if you write God a check, that you get your space as long as you honor God in some spaces of your life, then you will always have a heart that is bitter and indifferent and stiff-necked towards God. So again, that's the least-watched sermon of the series. So today we're going to talk about giving to the local church. Why? Well, let me be very direct and blunt from the get-go. Because this is a part of your discipleship. And a part of us maturing and growing and entrusting in Jesus 
it, it entails us trusting God in spaces that for many of us we don't want to. For many of us we infrequently do if we ever trust God. And so I, I want to take some time to read the Bible, to unpack the history of giving in the church, and then to talk about what I believe it means for us. Why is it such a big deal in this moment for our church's history? One is maturity. We as a church are very immature. About 30% of this church gives 85% of the budget. So what does that mean? Well, next week you're going to meet two missionaries from Thailand who have planted the first Christian church in a village of 10,000. They're going to be with us for both services. Usually you don't tell people that the preacher's not preaching whenever he's not preaching. I'm telling you, you do not want to miss next Sunday at this church because Cecil and Tracy Ramos are people of God that have an anointing from God on their life, and they have been seeing God do some incredible things in Thailand. And you're not going to miss the stories. Like, it's just you want to be here for it. It's going to be incredible. Your giving supports them in their work. Your giving is going to support them. Every five years, they get a furlough. And thanks to the generosity of some people in this church, we've got a lake house that they're going to get to go to for a period of time. We're going to stock it with groceries whenever they come here. We're going to pay for the rental car so they can, they can then go uh, see other church partners. Series listening to me. I don't know why. Jesus lives. Jesus is alive. Sorry. Don't act like I'm weird about the... Stop. How do you turn that off? Anybody know how to do that? My, my point is, you don't want to miss that. And the reason we talk about giving is because it entails your growth and your maturity, number one. But number two, it allows us collectively to take our obedience and be a blessing to missionaries all over the world that are going and planting the gospel in other places. And, and we, we can't do that when 30% of the church gives in the way that we could do it. We're going we're gonna to honor them. We're going to have a great time with them, but there's other churches to be planted. This morning, a church plant partner that we have is having their first service in Los Angeles today. Uh, Trenton Mueller at the Abiding Church, and when you give, it allows us to be a blessing to churches like the Abiding and to other churches in our community and around the world that we get to be a part of taking money, which is meaningless in eternity, and leverage it for what will be meaningful in eternity by helping plant and send and equip more missionaries around the world. That's why we're talking about you giving to the church. A third reason is, I don't know if you've noticed it, but even on a day when Carolina and Clemson were out late and some people who aren't here are still down there like camping out because, you know, it's Columbia, you know, like, you know, that. My, 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 my point is we are packed right now. We set the attendance record two weeks ago for church. We're running in the mid-fives, and uh, we, in two weeks, are starting a building campaign because we've purchased and paid cash for the property next door. <clears throat> and, and, and yes, we're going to be talking about pledging at the end of our 12-year anniversary in October and what that's going to look like for those that call this place home. No, it's not going to be like me standing with the can because I'm not a beggar and I'm not going to do that. Uh, I want you to be obedient. I'm going to be obedient. And together, God's given us everything we need to do, every good work he's called us to do. And we're going to be next door, hopefully within the next 18 to 36 months, depending on which elder or person you ask here in the church. I'm siding on the side of 18 months, but that's going to mean some of you are going to have to sell a minivan or something to help us get there. Um, <laughs> Uh, but, but nonetheless, we are moving towards that, and one of the primary things that a bank looks at whenever they give a church a loan, because we will be looking at taking a bank loan unless some of you want to be the lender at 0% interest for us, uh, which I'm, I'm throwing it out there just in case. Uh, but it, uh, we, we will have to get a bank loan, and right now our giving units, which is a major factor that the bank looks at, they look at giving units in a church to go, okay, if we give them this loan, how many people are contributing to make sure that this loan is paid back? 
And so if they see that a church of 500 or 600 adults has 100 adults actively giving every single week, that's a scary loan. I'm one bad sermon away in their mind from like running off the 18 people that give 90% of the budget uh, in that, and they're going to not get their money back. And no one likes to close on a church and tell them they've got to leave. That, that doesn't go well in the news, and it doesn't make you feel good in your soul. And so we know that giving units have to go up. What does that mean? That means that a lot of you who aren't giving have to give something, and you've got to start doing that consistently if we're going to make this next step. So, nonetheless, we open the Bible and we look at what it teaches about giving. Here we go. Um, let me give you a history from Genesis all the way through to the New Testament about giving and where we see it pop up. The first reference of this comes in Genesis chapter 14. Abraham tied to Melchizedek. We looked at this earlier in the series after he had the spoils of what God had given him. He gave a tenth or a tithe to Melchizedek and his priestly line acknowledging his authority and his kingship that allowed him to thrive where he was. That's in Genesis chapter 14. Uh, after Genesis chapter 14, the second instance of giving comes in Genesis chapter 28, where Jacob promises to give God a full tenth of everything God blesses Jacob with. Now, the law of Moses comes in later. Book of Exodus, that's where we get, uh, Levit and then after that, Leviticus and Deuteronomy come. Uh, and it's under the Mosaic law where we get the idea of giving that comes in, or the, the ways in which giving was Done. So we see three laws that are put in place under Mosaic law for how you are to give to God. The first one is you're to give a tenth of your harvest or of the work of your labor. It comes in Leviticus chapter 27, verse 30. So there's a giving of the first tenth that's put into law. One tenth of the produce of the land, whether grain from the fields or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord and must be set apart to him as Holy. And so this is where you get a lot of the vernacular and a lot of the thoughts that come in the New Testament church about giving a tenth of your income. It's speaking to that type of stuff. But there was more that was tied in the Mosaic Law. In fact, if you dig further, what you'll discover is that they had several festivals and feasts. And those festivals and feasts were put in place so that they would be looking ahead to the Messiah who would come and fulfill those festivals and feasts. The most popular one that you're probably familiar with is Passover where you would gather together and you would eat a, a specific meal together as a family and you would put the blood of a lamb over the doorpost and it was a reminder that you once were a lost people who had no heritage and had no future, but God heard your cries and he delivered you from your oppressors and he walked you through on dry land and annually they would go back to this Passover feast as a reminder of the promise of God's faithfulness to them as his People. Well, those festivals required, and different ones of them, required uh, offerings. And in Deuteronomy, they're commanded to give to those offerings. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 17, it says this, But you may not eat your offerings in your hometown, neither the tithe of your grain and the new wine and olive oil, nor the firstborn of your flocks and herds, nor any offering to fulfill a vow, nor, nor your voluntary offerings, nor, and this is where it's talking about the festivals, your sacred Offerings, And so you would give these sacred offerings for these festivals that would be set apart to the Lord. These ceremonial ties in this uh, Old Testament sense are done away with in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. If you look at what it says in Colossians 2, it says, Don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or for not celebrating certain holy days. 
And so this was a commandment up until the New Testament. You're going to see all these holidays, and you're going to celebrate these holidays, and you're going to remember these holidays because it was part of your identity and your ethnicity. But in the New Testament, we have a multicultural gathering, Gentile and Jewish people coming together. And what uh, Paul is writing under the Spirit to the church is that now these holy days, which were about the Messiah, have now been revealed in Jesus, and as a result of him being the fulfillment of those things, we no longer are mandated by law to observe those holidays and those remembrances. If you want to do a Passover meal at your home, great, go for it. But we're not waiting on the lamb to come. The lamb has already come. And make sure you put that note in your Passover celebration that the lamb has arrived and what we were looking forward to has now already come in Jesus. We're not awaiting his first coming. We're now awaiting his second coming. Does this make sense? And so, so we see Paul addressing this. He's saying, look, look, don't divide over this. Don't, don't argue over this. He even goes into the Gentile or new moon celebrations or Sabbaths. For these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come. And Christ himself is that reality. And so he's saying, look, Jesus is the fulfillment of these things. If you study your Bible further, there's seven I am statements that Jesus makes in the New Testament. Several of them are done around holidays and feasts that the Jewish calendar would celebrate. And they were done, and Jesus would say, I am, essentially, what they're celebrating, what they're looking for. In fact, if you look at uh, the uh, statement, I am the light of the world, Jesus said that during the Feast of Tabernacles, which was a celebration of light, where every evening people would walk with lights through the city up to the temple. And as that was the setting, the scriptures teach us, Jesus looked at it and said, I am what they're looking for. The light they're longing for is here, has arrived, and has come. So they would give to the offering and the festivals that was around. They would give the first tenth of their harvest to the, the Lord. And then there was a charity tithe that's commanded in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 28 and 29. At the end of every third year, bring the entire tithe of that year's harvest and store it in the nearest town. Give it to the Levites who will receive no allotment of land among you, as well as to the foreigners living among you, the orphans and the widows in your towns, so they can eat and be satisfied. Then the Lord your God will bless you in all of your work. All in all, many theologians debate. So is that a 30% of their income that they're giving? How much is it? Most believe that around 23% of the income was set aside to be given to the Lord. Which is a lot different than what you've been taught about just give 10. Here's my point in bringing it up. Uh, one of the most debated and argued points I hear in New Testament church in America. I've never heard this on the mission field and from other people. But in America, the argument is does the tithe stand? Should we still give to the church? And usually it's followed by um, arguments and reasons why we don't like giving to the church because a pastor has a lifestyle that's so lavish and so out there and he's driving whatever we believe he shouldn't be driving because pastors only drive Hyundais or whatever you think. Um, and and, and, and that, that ties into the reasoning that's built up on why we don't Give And I, I understand this. There is a mutual dance and a responsibility that the leadership in a church has to communicate how the resources of the church are being stewarded to go to what the Bible would teach us to actually give them to. In fact, I wrote down the things that I find in the Bible as reasons for why we give and what they should go to. And I'm going to give them to you quick. I, it was a bonus clip, and I'm just going to throw it in right now. When you give, these are the things I believe the Bible teaches us to give the resources to. Number one, 
there is a supporting of those elders and staff who serve the church. That comes in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. The, the laborer is worthy of his due. Or essentially, part of what we give to is so that I do this for a full-time gig and a full-time job and other pastors. Now, are we going to get rich off of this? No, but should we be in poverty because of it? Perhaps not in a country where we're thriving. Does that make sense? And the income of a pastor in New York City, downtown, and the income of a pastor in Greer, rural, probably looks a little bit different. And it should. And that's okay. Because the pastor's living in the community amongst the people, shepherding the sheep of the pastor of God that he's been called to steward and be alongside. So part, part of our giving, I'm just, I know it's a shocker for some of you, part of the giving goes to give me a salary. Thank you. Thank you. And our other pastoral team. The uh, second thing that we see in Scripture is for caring for the widows, the orphans, the poor, and the marginalized. We see that in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and James 1.27. And I could go and list hundreds of other texts where this is brought up. That when you give, we're to take a portion of that giving and set it aside for that. Right now, 8.5% of everything that comes in goes to missions. And then we give above that usually. We're on track now to give about 10 to 11% of our budget to benevolence, missions, and outreach in our community. That's good. It's not good enough. We want it to be 15%. But people have to actually give in order for us to be able to increase that because your fixed costs stay fixed. It's a really cool thing. The power bill is going to be the power bill whether y'all give or not. The lease is going to be the lease whether y'all give or not. What's fun is when everyone starts giving, we have more percentage we can give to stuff like that. Um, there's some stuff that you'll never know happened in this church. Um, we had a family that had holes in their roof, and the rain was raining into their house. And without asking you and without taking up a special offering, we put a new roof on. Just pay cash for it. we got to do that. Uh, we're going to feed about 1,000 people. Uh, this Thanksgiving, we're going to ask you to bring turkeys in, and we're going to pay for all of the sides and all the extra costs and all the extra stuff that goes into it. It's about a five or $6,000 bill, but we're going to feed 1,000 people in our community, and we're not going to ask you to give to that. I mean, that's coming off your baseline giving. And so, so we, we believe that there needs to be a priority put towards helping the marginalized, the widows, the poor that are around us. And we're doing our best to make sure that we continue to prioritize that as you give. We think that's in the Bible. Number three, when you give, uh, it should go to support other gospel work around the world. Third John 7 and 8 says and speaks to this very idea that when we give, it should go to multiplying other churches and investing in other ministries. And in some places, like up in Baltimore, inner city, we've got pastors like Pastor Austin who are never going to have a church in the community that he's serving that's going to be able to financially support his family being able to serve that community. And so we think that that's a worthy cause for us to get behind. And we want to put resources and people resource and financial resource into that kind of work because we believe that the people of inner city Baltimore need the gospel. And, and why would we not leverage the income and the blessing that we've been given here so that it could go to support gospel work in places like that? Uh, fourth, the fourth reason is you give to support the ministry within the church. See the entire book of Acts if you need a biblical precedent for what that looks like. But the idea is we want our kids' ministry, our student ministry. Uh, we get to send kids to camp, and we don't have to take up tons of special offerings to do that. We offset it by just taking the offerings and blessing and sending students to go and meet Jesus for a week at a camp experience. The, 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 look, the point is... We, we like to get real iffy and sticky about what to give to, but these four things are pretty clear that when you give, these things get funded. And I think they're worthwhile things for us to give 
two. So the question stands, then, why or how much or should we give to our church? Should we give to our church? Well, in the book of Malachi, which is where most preachers go, you get the last book of the Old Testament. In the book of Malachi, Jesus addresses some hard truths. He starts in chapter 1 by saying, I have loved you. And cynical Israel says, how have you loved us? And so he goes through rebuking and calling out the areas of their unfaithfulness and how they've wavered in faithfulness to God and graciously and lovingly caused them to repentance and to trust in the process of waiting on him to come through. And in Malachi chapter 3, you get this text, which is going to make everyone's hair on the back of their neck stand up. Because after it, you end in the Old Testament, the last word of your Old Testament. Anybody know what the last word of the Old Testament is? It's curse. It's curse. That's a fun preacher fact. And then we begin a dawn 400 years later of the New Testament where Jesus steps into history. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 8, this is what Jesus says. Malachi 3, 8. Should people cheat God? Yet you have cheated me. But you ask, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? You have cheated me of tithes and offerings. Two things. The tithe that we were talking about that comes from the sweat of your uh, labor, your grain, your harvest, the, the, uh, the first tenth of that not being given, and offerings. What are offerings? That's generosity. That's the willingness to go above what's baseline obedience and say yes to God when necessary, when prompted. So there's a stiff neckness that's not even giving God the basics, the first fruits, that's also refusing to give him offerings. It's, it's amazing to think that if we aren't willing to be obedient with the small things, we won't be generous in other areas of our lives. It seems to flow together. Offerings due to me. You are under a curse, for your whole nation has been cheating me. Bring all tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's army, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. Now, th these words have been uh, energized with pastor's exuberance because they're struggling to fund ministry or whatever. And, and I think at times we can lose the context. But let's just take off the page the three things that this text is saying. Number one. God accuses his people of robbing him by failing to tithe. Number two, God challenges people to test him. It's one of the only places in the Bible where he says, don't believe me, try me. Number three, God promises to bless those who trust in him and give. God promises to bless those who trust in him and give. And we see this principle carried over in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. And particularly, if you, if you trust me and if you give to me, I will bless you in return. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 says, Remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. And so the idea is that there's this generosity that comes whenever we sow in faith and whenever we honor God in faith, that he comes back and blesses us whenever we honor him with what he has given us. Now, if you carry Malachi over into the New Testament, the question is, what happens with Jesus in fulfilling the law? In Matthew chapter 23, he addresses tithing with the Pharisees. And many use this as a sense of saying, well, we don't need to tithe or give anymore. Matthew 23, verse 23 says this, What sorrow awaits you teachers, that's the Pharisees, of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law. Justice, mercy, and faith. What he's not saying is, in this text, 
The tithe is not important. You don't need to pay attention to it. He's essentially saying the tithe is simple, basic obedience. If you're not obedient with something as simple and clear as honoring me with the first fruits of what you've been given, then how in the world are you going to be soft-hearted and open-handed when it comes to doing the works of justice, which is why the church is on this earth, when it comes to extending God's mercy, and when it comes to living and walking in active faith? If you don't trust him with a little, how can you expect that in the bigger matters of life you're going to still be obedient and trust him? It makes sense, right? What he's not saying is, you don't need to tie that's not important. He's saying, essentially, you pay attention to the easy stuff, Pharisees, teachers of the law, and the harder things that require greater sacrifice are the things that you ignore, are the things that you put off. Essentially, Jesus in this text doesn't denounce the tithe. He denounced using the tithe as an excuse for ignoring the harder parts of following him. Essentially, Jesus is saying, yes, you should tithe, tithe, but don't think because you tithe you should ignore the cries of the poor and the needy that are around you. Let me address this in the way that I've heard it in our context. How many of you have said when a poor person or a marginalized person was in front of you and you honestly didn't even consider whether or not God was asking you to step into their circumstance, story, and help, said, well, I already give to this food bank, already give to this place, so if you need anything, go down there. And you dismiss the opportunity to engage with an image bearer of God because you already gave your tithe to the food bank. Because you already gave to the ministry that helps the poor, so I've already done my part. Listen, let me be very clear. It's not your job to go and, and give money to every homeless person that asks you for money or to give your money to every poor person that is around you. It is your job to be a discerning follower of Jesus and every opportunity that comes in front of you is to be discerned in conversation with him as you're engaging with them around you. This is what I'm after. So, so I don't just say yes to everyone. There are some days where I have money in my pocket and I feel with conviction the Lord tell me it is not my job to extend the money from my pocket into the hand of the person that is in front of me. However, there have been times where I started out hard-hearted and I deferred to the leadership of God and said, God, is this the moment where you're asking me to join in with your work? And he has softened my heart and told me, go back, sit down, be inconvenienced, step in, serve, and don't leave. And this, this is what I'm after as your pastor. For a lot of us, we write a check, and then we're done. And so there's no more looking for the Spirit to guide us into or engage with other people that are around us that may be hurting and oppressed. And I just want to submit to you that if you go a whole calendar year without having your life inconvenienced by stepping into the need of a neighbor, that is a year that you've likely ignored God's call to the poor and the oppressed that are around you. Like, it's, it's not like a triannual thing, like every three years, like, you know, we, 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 we serve. Or you don't need a mission trip to do this, to know, okay, this is the mandate. What, what you need is to get, get in your mind that the way you lived on the mission trip is the normal way you're supposed to live at home, which is the problem that we struggle with in our church and in our community. Essentially, Jesus is saying that the tithe was to be consistent, but it was not to eliminate you from continuing toward being increasingly generous. My capacity for generosity has, for the most part, grown over time. I may not be making what the Joneses are making, but I am far from the $7.25 that I got at my first job as a YMCA camp counselor back in 2002. What Jesus is teaching in the text is consistent giving with the commitment to ongoing generosity. 
Consistent giving with a commitment to ongoing generosity. The change from the Old Testament and the New Testament is one from obligatory giving to one of spirit-led generosity. We no longer give out of obligation. We now freely give because we freely... You see how this works. I don't have to, but I get to. And you hear the preacher talk about it, and they're excited about it, and you're like, oh, it's just a ploy to get us to give. No, 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 you don't, you don't understand. That, that's, that's the transition. The transition is we are mandated and we are cursed under a law that we can't fulfill, but now we've been delivered and we are free, not so that we can walk in ignorance to the law, but now by the Spirit we walk in obedience to the law, and it's our joy because we know that when we fall short of the law, the grace of God is sufficient for us so that we continue to walk in step and in fellowship with God, which was the whole point of the law. Because if you want fellowship with me, you had to keep the law in the Old Testament, which we couldn't keep, which made us look forward to the Messiah that was going to come, and that's who's revealed in the New Testament. His name is Jesus. We're pretty big radicals about him around here. And, and, and we love Jesus because he fulfills the law. So now as a result of him fulfilling the law, we can have a relationship because of Jesus and not the law. But it doesn't mean that God's holy and righteous way is eliminated. It just means that now we have grace and mercy. And for many of you, let's just be honest, you're abusing God's grace when it comes to giving. Because this is an optional thing for you. This is a spare change thing for you. You offer God the quarter in your pocket, but not the first fruits from your harvest. Therefore, churches all over our community in various ways suffer. And my favorite thing is whenever people move from lower levels of income to higher levels of income, they weren't honoring God at lower levels of income, and magically they're not honoring them at higher levels of income. And the, 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 I've had several conversations with affluent people that have said, but that's a lot of money. Well, do we need to go back down the ladder so that you can understand baseline obedience so that you can then work up? I mean, do you need to be decreased by God so that you can then get to a place of being able to honor God with what you have? Because better to have a little and honor God with it than to have much and dishonor God with much. Right. <clears throat> I was sitting in a moving truck with a guy that started a solar company. We had walked with him through bankruptcy. My wife and I living on a whopping $2,400 a month with a $1,300 mortgage in California. Uh, yes, it was God's grace that we got that $1,300 mortgage. Had written around, around a $4,000 check to them whenever they were going through bankruptcy to help and bless them. And uh, I never forget, we're sitting in the truck, we're moving them from the rental house into this really nice rental house because the company's taken off and the solar's, you know, a big deal because the sun only shines in California. Uh, it never rains. Um, that's where that song, in, that, that band of the 90s wrote that song, No Rain. All I can say is that my life is pretty plain. All right, anyway. Um, these are the ADD thoughts of a pastor. He, we were in the moving truck, and he said, man, you know, we've been blessed with so much. And I, I'm not talking about giving to the church or anything with them. He just looks at me without prompting. He says, but I'm struggling to give now because that's a lot of money. And, and we were the kind of friends to where I could tell him stuff that I don't have to have a filter on. So I literally whacked him. We about wrecked. And I said, are you kidding me? When you had nothing, was God faithful and good to you? And now he's blessed you with something and you have the opportunity to give. And your first response is you're afraid to write a check with a few zeros beside it. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? And I told him, I said, may God take you back to nothing if that's what it takes to get your trust. I don't think I won't be Old Testament every now and then on people. <laughs> How do you become a giver? 
Because many of us, we know we ought to. This is not revelatory. How do you become a giver? Let's, let's quickly walk through how God took me and my wife on a journey. We knew we were giving. We were not giving to our church the way we were supposed to, so we started praying. I believe that all giving starts in prayer. All giving starts in prayer. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7 lays out this blueprint. You must each decide in your heart how much to give. So pray. Because you've already decided in your heart without prayer what you think you can give. Now let's go ask God what he already gave you to give. And for a lot of you, there's a big difference. You start with prayer. Yeah, I, th- this is the whole point. You either set the standard which will be substandard or God sets the standard which will honor him. And I, I want to start with bringing our finances to God. And so my, my wife and I do this annually and I'll talk about it again in a minute. So if you want to become a giver, I'm asking you to pray about what God would have you give, number one. And let me, let me make sure you understand this. It's not praying simply for what God would have you give your church. My wife and I have a portion of our income that we give to our church, and we have a portion of our income that we give to our neighbor. We have a portion of our income that we give to our stranger. These are the biblical principles that are there. So we set aside 1% of our income for the stranger. We set aside 1% of our income for our neighbor. And we set another percentage of our income aside for giving to the church. We have another percentage of our income that we give to organizations that we believe in. Now, you're hearing all that, and you're like, okay, wait, 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 slow down, Thunder. But let me, let me be clear. We started with just honoring God and giving to our church. All this other stuff came from the journey of trying to outgive God. Are you tracking with me? So we started by praying, number one. Number two, get a conviction. Uh, give out a conviction, not obligation. You pray, and then you get conviction. This is what God would have us do, and we don't have to, but we choose to because we want to honor God. Where do we get it from? The second part of uh, verse 7, it says this, and don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. So if what you come away with is the pastor's pressuring us to give or else, you've heard the wrong message. You are not obligated to give anything. You're not under a curse. Jesus took the curse off of you. But there is a blessing that holds to those who steward their money and honor it because God has a way, whenever you put things in his hands, of multiplying it in a way that he can't multiply things that you don't put in his hands. Does this make sense? So you pray, and then you get a conviction. This is what God has said as a standard of generosity for us. For my family, it looks different than you. And for many of you, are like, well, just tell us what you give, and we'll do it. That's stupid. That's stupid. I've been on a 19-year journey of trusting God. If I told you what we gave, it would make some of you scared to death. And for others of you, you would be unimpressed. And you'd be like, well, that's not enough. Because you're just reaching in your pocket and you can give more than I can give with the change than I can give with my first fruits. And neither are obedient, neither are good. Journey to giving. You pray, you give out of conviction, not obligation. Number three, you give what you agree to joyfully. It should almost be gleeful. It's an act of worship. For God loves a person who gives. When's the last time you cheered on your way to the offering box? Now, now don't, 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 be, don't be like some people that are like trying to draw attention to themselves. Like, yeah, offering! And you know it's not first fruits. You've not prayed about it. It's not a conviction. It's obligation. You just want attention. Don't do that. Don't be that person. God rebukes that person in the Bible. But you should be cheerful about it. It's exciting. You've got a plan. You've put your finances together. Now you get to honor God with what you have agreed to give. Number four, I believe this is a mandate we see all throughout the New Testament. Be consistent in your support to your local church. 
The letter to the church in Philippians is written in response to the consistent financial support uh, that the church had given in, in the time of need for the church in Jerusalem. And so Paul writes Philippians to encourage the, the, the church in Philippi because they've been giving consistently to support the church in Jerusalem that's suffering and going through major hardship. So he's honoring their consistency and, and encouraging and admonishing them. So be consistent in your support. Number five, look for opportunities to give generously. That means we didn't pray about it, but God now put us in it, and he blessed us with the opportunity to do it. Generosity is what I believe the New Test is the New Testament goal for the believer. We talked extensively about this last week, but generous giving is above expectation. It means here's what's expected, here's what we were giving, but now we're going to go above and beyond that because we see a need or an opportunity where we get to give and join in with what God is doing. So we start praying. We give out a conviction, not obligation. We give what, what uh, we agree joyfully. We're consistent in our support. We look for opportunities to give generously. Number six, we look for opportunities for sacrificial giving. Some of y'all were hoping it was going to stop at five. What's sacrificial giving? Sacrificial giving is different from generous giving. Generous giving is above and beyond the expectation. Sacrificial giving is it cost us something. Our lifestyle was inhibited. Our purchasing power was diminished. We went without so that something else could go with. That's sacrificial giving. We'll talk about it more later. Number seven, last thing. Note moments as you're giving where you see God bless you in your giving. Most of you have forgotten more miracles than some will ever see. It's not because God's not moving. It's because you just, if you're not appeased in the moment, if Jesus isn't delivering fast food, fast food miracles, fast food blessings, then we forget everything that he's done and we believe that he's unfaithful and untrue and then we start crying out and shaking our fist at him and acting like he's not faithful and good and all because you had to go 10 minutes longer than you wanted to wait on something. You know, Abraham died with one son in the promise that God had given him. But he died in belief that he was going to be the father of many. Most of you have more that you can see in the fulfillment of the promises that God's given you, but yet you don't have the faith of Abraham that believed even in death that God would make you a father of many nations if you only had one. Luke chapter 6 verse 38 says this, Give and you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full. Press down, shaken together, to make room for more. Why? Because when God knows that what you have doesn't possess you, he knows that he can entrust you with more and it be stewarded for his glory and not your own idolatry. Your giving makes room for you to be blessed. Together to make room for more. Running over and poured into your lap. The amount you give will determine the amount you get back. Luke 6, 30. You see, here's the thing. The Bible is not gray on the issue. We just want it to be gray so that we can continue to act like we're ignorant. So here's my question. Do you trust in God? Do you trust him? B because if we say yes, and this is why there's silence in the room, yet we've not even deferred our finances to him and said, God, what would you have us do? 
then we all know that what we're singing is a desire that is not a reality. You cannot serve two masters. You will love one and you will... You cannot serve both God and... Not Russ's words, but that's the Bible's words. So what do my wife and I do? Every year, we annually sit down on a date night. It's a really cool idea if you're married. You may not have heard of this, but apparently... the reason you decided to get married and have those children, or for some of us, we decided to get married and then have children. For some of us, we did it a different way and God's in it. Praise God. My point, <clears throat> my point is, apparently dating, is, it, it's helpful to remember that you're not roommates, but like there's a reason like you're doing this whole life thing together. So we go annually on a date and we open our hands over our finances. We do not look at what's currently in the bank account bank account first. We first come to God and we pray, God, what would you have us do? What is the standard of generosity that you're setting out for us in this next year? Where would you like for us to allocate our resources? Where do you want us to move our resources? And I'll just be blunt with you. There have been times where we've given away up to 25% of our income, and there have been times where we've given away about 12 to 13% of our income annually since we started doing this. God has always provided and he has always set the standard for us. And what I'm after as your pastor is not an obligatory commitment of, oh, I gotta go do this, but that you would begin to walk with the Spirit and that you would begin to pray and ask God to speak to you, to set a standard for what generosity and obedient giving and sacrificial giving will look like for you. And then joyfully, my joy as your pastor, as my wife and I are getting to do it, is that we would get to see you do it and we would get to hear the stories of how God's moving in your life as you're giving, not just to your local church, but to others that are around you and being a blessing to those that are around you and actually living in the calling that God has called us to as followers of God. That's what we're after. It's not like we need some giving units to go up or we're not going to get the loan. No, God will move either through you or in spite of you. The joy is and the journey is, is that you get the opportunity to be moved through as God moves us into our next story and uh, history and where we're going to go. But if you don't want to do that and you want to be a, you know, a, a curmudgeon and you want to like, oh, no, I just want my money when I go to church, keep your money to yourself and choke on it. We don't want it. I don't, I, I'm not joking. Like just, ugh. If you can't be joyful, don't go by the box. Just leave. Come back and sit here and maybe the spirit will hit you at some point and you'll get excited. You'll move from being Ebenezer to actually being like, I don't know, generous, like Jesus. That's the goal. The goal is that you would in relationship defer everything to him, that he would lead you to the point of obedience that you could lead in with conviction and it would become a joy. So our prayer team's here. If you need prayer, we'd love to pray with you. You move to the Lord, please. In Jesus' name.